and welcome to, to the second session of the Oxford Virginia Legal Dialogue Workshop. Uh, I'm Tilly Dagan, Professor of Taxation Law at the Oxford University, and my co-convener uh, for this workshop series is Ruth Mason. Uh, she's the Edwin S. Cohen Distinguished Professor of Law and Taxation at the University of Virginia and an affiliated uh, faculty member of the Virginia Center for Tax Law. And we're both very happy to welcome you here today. Um, so as you may know, the, the goal of this workshop um, is to facilitate dialogue across legal areas by bringing tax academics together with non-tax academics. And the concept is, is quite simple. Uh, Ruth and I invite tax academics uh, that we admire to choose a work by a non-tax academic that they admire uh, and discuss it uh, with the author and with us. Um, so it's a really special treat uh, for us to have uh, here with us today uh, Ron Gilson and Michael Knoll to discuss uh, Roll's classic piece on value creation by business lawyers, legal skills and asset pricing. Um, Ron Gilson probably needs no introduction uh, to this audience. A member of the law school faculty at Columbia and an emeritus professor of law at Stanford, Ron is one of the most prominent voices in corporate governance law and economics um, and corporate finance. He is an expert on capital markets, uh, complex contracting, mergers and acquisitions, as well as securities regulation. Ron is the author of two major casebooks on corporate finance and corporate acquisitions, as well as over 90 articles on US and comparative corporate governance and on venture capital. Ron was a reporter of the American Law Institute's Corporate Governance Project. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the European Corporate Governance Institute, and is an independent board chair for the American Century Investment in Mountain View family of mutual funds, managing over $40 billion in assets. So thank you very much, Ron, for joining us today. Well, I, I appreciate uh, it's the it was one of the first things I wrote, frankly, and um, it um, it I think it's frankly, it remains my favorite. <laughs> so uh, I'm delighted uh, to have this chance. It's a humbling uh, lesson for, you know, uh, uh, aspiring academics if this is the, the first one you've written, but uh, we'll have to cope with that, I guess. <laughs> um, Ruth. Okay, so um, it is my uh, great pleasure to introduce my brilliant and wonderful friend and frequent co-author, Michael Knoll. Um, Michael is the Theodore Warner Professor and Director of the Center for Tax Law and Policy at the University of Pennsylvania, Cary School of Law. He's also a Professor of Real Estate at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. Uh, Michael writes about tax discrimination, sovereign wealth funds, private equity, uh, international tax arbitrage, taxes and competitiveness, including the differences between what economists mean and what tax lawyers mean when they talk about competitiveness. Um, Michael talk, comes at all of these topics from uh, economics, which is why I love thinking things through with Michael. And I've been lucky to be able to do that frequently over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. And a dozen articles. Um, so there's 
no one better to start our discussion on Ron's piece, especially since Michael is both an economist and a professor of tax law. Um, so I know everybody is really excited to have Michael and Ron here today, but before we start, I just want to mention a couple of items of housekeeping. Um, first, Michael will make some comments and then Ron will respond and then we will open it up to a Q&A. So if you'd like to be in the queue, please use the raise hand function to access that. Uh, just click participants and then the raise hand button. You'll be able to see the queue. And you see there's a lot of people here today. So if the queue starts getting long, just be mindful of that and try to keep your questions short, okay? Um, and please also convey your name and your institutional affiliation in the chat so that we can give that information to our speakers today uh, after the session. For future sessions, there's a separate sign-up link which you can find on the web. Uh, and you can also sign up for our uh, newsletter that will get you all of the, the invitations to all of the sessions. Okay, so Michael. Yes, it's to me then, right? To you. To me, terrific. All right, well, um, thank you, Tilly, for the invitation. Thank you, Ruth, for the invitation, for being my uh, incredible full partner this last 10 years on our uh, study of um, cross-border taxation, and I'm looking to forward to more to come. I wanna thank Oxford and the University of Virginia for sponsoring this series and Ron Gilson, who's been such an inspiration for agreeing to join in this uh, new and uh, exciting format. And of course, to everyone, both uh, familiar faces and new faces for your attendance today. When I was asked to participate in this series and choose a classic non-tax law review article, that I thought tax scholars and practitioners would find valuable and interesting to read and discuss, my attention immediately went to Ron's highly imaginative and pathbreaking 1984 Yale Law Journal article, Value Creation by Business Lawyers, Legal Skills and Asset Prices. That article not only began a theoretical and empirical literature to understand the work of transactional lawyers, and many tax lawyers think of themselves as transactional lawyers. It also gave rise to a new course, Deals, that is offered at law schools and some business schools in the United States and around the world. Ron begins value creation by asking a pair of questions that is simultaneously both simple and profound. What do transactional lawyers do? And why do sophisticated clients hire them? Ron starts by noting that clients and the public at large generally have a very uncharitable view of lawyers and the work they do, and that business lawyers themselves do not have a clear picture either. Nonetheless, sophisticated, hard-nosed, money-conscious repeat players frequently and regularly hire lawyers, even if they complain about the cost of doing so. Thus, Ron concludes lawyers must add value to the transaction, for otherwise those bottom line focused clients would not hire them. Thus, the question becomes, how do transactional lawyers create value for their clients? 
It cannot simply be by protecting their clients from their counterparties and their lawyers. Such distributive bargaining does not create value. It merely distributes it, but at, but at a cost. If all lawyers did, to use the standard metaphor, was to divide the pie, sophisticated repeat players would eschew legal representation, or at least rein in their lawyers. No, instead, lawyers must actually increase the value of the transactions in which they participate. That is to say, transactional lawyers must increase the size of the pie in order for their clients to justify the expense of hiring them. Thus, Ron turns his attention to the question, how do lawyers increase the value of the transactions on which they work? Ron addresses that question, not as one might think, by examining what transactional lawyers do. And Ron spent more time in practice than most of us academics, but instead through economic theory. Using the paradigm of a sale, think a substantial merger or acquisition, Ron observes that basic finance theory implies that lawyers cannot add value. Ron draws on capital asset pricing theory, the main conclusion of which is that asset values are a simple linear function of expected return and systematic or non-diversifiable risk. In such a world, assets are valued based solely on their own characteristics, and hence there is little or no role for business lawyers to play in most transactions. At most, lawyers can document or execute an agreed-upon sale at an agreed-upon price, as there is nothing that they can do to increase the value of the transaction. Ron's next step, and this was a powerful insight, is as follows. First, Ron recognizes that capital asset pricing theory is based on assumptions, including perfect information, which is to say all information is costlessly available to all market participants, and the absence of transactions costs, which is to say no agency bankruptcy and contracting costs. It thus follows that either clients are wasting their money or the theory is wrong. Ron rejects the idea that clients are foolishly throwing away money. And so the theory must be wrong in the sense that some or all of the theory's assumptions are not accurate or even a fairly close depiction of reality because business lawyers are regularly being hired and paid handsomely Ron then flips asset pricing theories assumptions upside down and recognizes that business lawyers create value by compensating for the theory's failure and reducing the, the divergence between theory and the actual world. For example, one assumption that does not hold in the real world is that the parties have perfect information, but lawyers can bring the parties closer to that condition either by uncovering information or writing contract terms that reduce the risks raised by information gaps. That insight in turn allows Ron to advance a view of the business lawyer that is very different from the traditional view of a lawyer, typically a litigator, either depending upon your perspective as a golden tongued 
oral advocate seeking truth and justice, or a sophist protecting a dangerous and ill-willed client who is nonetheless entitled to vigorous legal representation. Ron's view of the business lawyer is simpler and more technocratic. The business lawyer is an engineer. In Ron's terminology, a business lawyer is a transactions cost engineer, or more simply, a transactions engineer. Choose, choosing a deal structure or drafting an agreement is thus an exercise in transactional engineering. The lawyer and her client are designing and building a legal framework that will memorialize and execute the transaction that the parties are planning and set the ground rules that will govern the parties' interactions for the duration of the agreement. Structuring is a value creation exercise, and this is key for Ron. It is not competitive between the parties, but cooperative. In many cases, lawyers make possible an attractive deal that otherwise might not be feasible because of asymmetric information and transaction costs. The view of transactional lawyering has been referred to as the pie expansion to distinguish it from the pie division view of transactional lawyering. Ron's next step, which, amount, which accounts for much of the article's length, is to provide several examples from M&A agreements that illustrate how business lawyers create value for their clients. As Ron demonstrates, the provisions of the agreement work, which is to say add value, by overcoming failures in the capital asset pricing theory's assumption, which is to say much of the work that transactional lawyers do compensates for asymmetric information or high transactions costs. Ron's examples range from the straightforward and simple to the subtle and complex. Consider, for example, an earnout. As Ron points out, buyer and seller will often have access to different information about an asset, such as a business. A seller might believe that the asset is highly, val highly valuable, confident that sales will be high, whereas a buyer might be skeptical of such claims. An earnout, a contingent payment in whole or part, by allowing the price to be determined ex post as events unfold, eliminates disagreement over the extent of future sales. An important, an important source of asymmetric information. A more subtle example involves the role of third-party opinions, such as regards the tax treatment of a transaction or whether a leasehold is assignable. Such opinions typically require access to non-public information as well as legal analysis. Sellers' counsel is often in the best position to obtain the information and to undertake the analysis. Moreover, in contrast to the seller who might have no interest or concern about his reputation beyond the current transaction, except as a good tipper and genial person at the bars, beaches, and golf clubs to be frequented in affluent retirement, an intermediary such as a law firm that is regularly engaged in transactions with other intermediaries and acquirers does have a reputation to protect. Maintaining that reputation can, and often will, constrain an intermediary from doing what even a 
paying client asks for. Not always, and there are some famous cautionary tales here, such as Enron and Arthur Anderson, its auditors. Having described the business lawyer as a transactions cost engineer, and having provided some vivid examples of the valuable work such lawyers do, Ron underscores that transactional legal practice is substantially different than the content of courses that constitute the heart of the business law curriculum at most US law schools. Courses such as contracts and business associations and the more advanced courses that build upon them, including bankruptcy, mergers and acquisitions, secure transactions and others would suggest. This leads Ron to ask the question, why lawyers? That is, why do lawyers seem to have principal responsibility for transaction structuring, negotiation and execution, as that work seems poorly connected to legal education? An issue he returns to, and so will I shortly. Ron's answer is twofold. First, the work of negotiating, drafting and structuring transactions is closely connected with questions of regulatory treatment, where lawyers have an obvious and largely protected advantage over competitors, which Ron identifies as accounting firms and investment banks. And second, there are economies of scope that come from responsibility for the paperwork executing the transaction. Nonetheless, Ron argues that such advantages are not a guarantee especially given the nature of the work being largely orthogonal to transaction, traditional legal education. And so lawyers need to be careful not to lose their comparative advantage. And in the intervening 35 to 40 years, both groups of competitors Ron identifies, accounting firms and investment banks have come to play a larger role with lawyers having less responsibility for structuring and more for execution in mergers and acquisitions and other practice areas as well. That leads Ron into a critique of business law education, which he argues does not adequately prepare business lawyers for transactional work. That is because many of the skills the successful business lawyer employs are neither inherently legal nor are they acquired through traditional legal training. Ron argues that business lawyers first need to consciously recognize that many of the functions they perform are not inherently legal and acknowledge that much of their transactional work product involves responding to situations of asymmetric information and high transactions costs. Accordingly, Ron argues for refocusing business law education away from doctrinal siloed classes and more towards theory. The theory Ron advocates law schools teach is transactions, costs, economics, and finance. Moreover, Ron advocates teaching theory not in the way it has come to be taught as relevant for understanding or criticizing the policy and logic behind the doctrinal laws, but rather as a basis for facilitating practice. As Ron points out, theory is an extremely effective, efficient, and powerful way 
of conveying, storing, and organizing information. Also, a deep theoretical understanding as opposed to a siloed understanding based on traditional practice areas should allow one to be more creative in designing solutions to novel and challenging problems. The details of that theory and how to teach it go beyond the scope we have time for. And the latter has been substantially developed since Ron published Value Creation. However, the foundation is still the same. Much of what business lawyers do is transactional engineering, which is in turn an application of transactions cost economics. Moreover, the set of underlying problems that lawyers address is at a general and abstract level, fairly small, as are the class of solutions. Although those problems and their solutions present in a wide variety of forms that can differ sharply across practice areas, they are, in terms of their underlying structure, limited and constant across areas. Accordingly, rather than having lawyers develop that understanding slowly over time through experience, working with more senior lawyers, often through the legal apprentice system, commonly referred to as the cravat system, Ron urges law schools to accelerate their students' learning by teaching the relevant theory to students and cementing that knowledge by showing them how it plays out. Since its publication, Ron's value creation by business lawyers has had a large impact in academia. Ron's approach has been widely followed by other academics. In Ron's hands and in the hands of those who have followed him, the study of business lawyers as transactional engineers has provided many new insights and rich details about how deals are negotiated, structured, and executed. The work transactional lawyers and other transactional professionals do and why many transactions take the form they do. And indeed, from a quick glance at the people here, I see a number of people who've contributed to that literature are here today. Accordingly, Ron's view of the business lawyer, at least in part as a transactional engineer, has become well-established and widely recognized. The widespread claim, a cliche practically, that a business lawyer is a problem solver is a simplified version of Ron's transactional engineer. The irony is that many lawyers do not know, and few know at a deep level, how to problem solve as Ron understands it. Furthermore, Ron's article, especially his call for modernizing the pedagogy of business law teaching, has also had a substantial impact. In the mid-1990s, Ron, along with Victor Goldberg of Columbia Law School and Dan Rath, then of Columbia Business School, offered the first deals course. That course, which teaches the theory underlying the structure behind contracts and transactions, has been widely picked up at law and business schools in the United States and abroad. And Dan and I teach it together now at Penn. 
That offering, however, has not replaced, nor does it attract as many students as the more traditional doctrinal course, courses. What about tax? Ron spends only a small portion of value creation discussing tax. He sees the work of tax lawyers as fundamentally different from the private law work of other transactional lawyers and more in common with public law fields. According to Ron, the tax lawyer, like the securities lawyer, is engaged in regulatory arbitrage, navigating a complex legal system in such a way as to reduce the burden of that system on private parties. And although that is so, it is not clear that such work is the limit of the tax lawyer's job or that her job is independent of the many other considerations that apply to business lawyers that Ron discusses. Thus, practitioners and academics can benefit from the ideas in value creation. Consider, for example, frictions, a concept tax academics regularly invoke and practitioners have to regularly confront. Although nearly 40 years old, Ron's description and discussion of frictions is very sophisticated. It also relates very closely to the work tax lawyers do or that is directly impacted by their work. For example, if a tax lawyer says that in order to achieve a particular desirable tax result, a transaction cannot be structured as an asset sale, that is likely to have implications for the transfer of assets and liabilities and the extent of representations and warranties. Or consider aircraft leases. Safe Harbor leasing in the early 1990, sorry, in the early 1980s produced simple lease contracts because of the because all of the economic risk from the aircraft could be allocated to the lessee, the airline which controlled and operated the aircraft, while the tax benefits were transferred to the lessor, who did not. The end of safe harbor leasing meant that in order for the lease to be respected and for the tax benefits to transfer from lessee to lessor, some of the risk had to remain with the lessor which still did not control the aircraft. Accordingly, lease contracts got longer and more complicated to address the information and agency issues that were created. Or consider earnouts, which are used to bridge information gaps, but also have incentive effects that can be good or bad. While a business lawyer or other advisor might tell a seller, you'll pay tax when you receive payment. That statement covers and hides a lot of complexity and sellers who do not understand the tax treatment of earnouts and are not adequately advised can miss opportunities to improve their after tax results or may be surprised by the tax consequences of the deals they strike. More generally, tax and non-tax considerations interact. They do not exist in separate and independent realms and understanding how they interact would seem to be helpful in practice and for scholars. Expressed somewhat differently, business lawyers need to understand some tax, but tax lawyers really need to understand business. That leads to my, me to my last point, which is more a question. What are the implications 
of Ron's ideas for tax pedagogy? And where should they lead us as tax teachers? It is common to refer to transactional tax work as Ron does as engaging in regulatory arbitrage. Although some tax planning involves arbitrage, for example, borrowing against a business and investing in an IRA, most tax planning does not involve arbitrage, which is the simultaneous purchase and sale of offsetting positions. Instead, most tax planning involves choosing among inexact alternatives that can produce significantly different tax consequences. Moreover, tax planning frequently occurs in situations involving multiple parties. Consider, for example, a business acquisition and the decisions whether to use cash or stock as consideration and whether to structure the acquisition as an asset sale, a stock sale, or a merger. And if a merger, then what kind of merger? To advise the parties, one not only needs to understand the legal and tax doctrine, but also the impact of each option on both target and acquirer. In recent decades, tax enrollments have declined. Should tax teaching focus more on tax planning? If so, how should we teach it? And how much attention should planning get? Also, is there a theory of taxation that can be usefully incorporated into our pedagogy? And should we strive to connect tax with subjects outside of tax? And particularly with the work that transactional lawyers do. These questions and more are among those that Ron's excellent 1984 article raises for tax practitioners and academics today. Thank you. Ron, do you want to respond? Oh, what I uh, initially want to do is um, uh, is thank Michael for that enormously kind, uh, enormously kind uh, summary of the thought behind the paper. Um, the maybe the, the easiest thing I can do is talk a little or most useful thing I can do is talk a little bit about the relationship between the approach that's reflected in um, in the old article uh, and uh, uh, tax law, uh, tax practice and tax regulation, which I've spent a lot of time worrying about, because as I try and teach the the deals course, I've got time for maybe one or one and a half sessions in which classes in which I've got to explain something critical that I think is critical for non-tax lawyers to be extremely sophisticated uh, purchasers of tax ex expertise. And this, where I've come down is sort of um, two, uh, two, two central points which apply to tax law and also apply uh, to regulate to the interaction of regulatory systems with transactions uh, as well uh, the first one which is critical uh, gr initially grew out of some work that Myron Scholes and Mark Wolfson and I did and then um, grew to uh, a book 
that uh, Myron and Mark wrote that I think um, that I think is just absolutely wonderful. Um, it makes one point, um, and uh, I I uh, I made a a joke. I was asked to uh, to do a blurb on the back for the back of the cover uh, on the book, and I sent them something which was a fake blurb, which is to say. Um, with something along the lines of, uh, this book only has one idea, but one idea is a lot, and this one is really good. Uh, I really would have liked to have kept that, but the uh, publisher wouldn't let me. The point that Scholes and Wolfson may stress is that um, the point, the, the goal of tax planning isn't to minimize tax. It's to maximize after-tax income, which makes the non-tax costs of implementing a tax minimization strategy absolutely central. So that uh, what we've what a good tax lawyer has got to do, and you'll you'll recognize my own bias, this is kind of a uh, a translation of value creation into a tax world. Um, they have to deeply understand the non-tax -co non costs of what the tax strategy is. The transaction lawyers are going to need help from the tax lawyers in framing those issues. In turn, the tax lawyers have to be able to identify what the constraints are and how that influences the kinds of the costs of trying to address, uh, to try to invest, invest uh, uh, tax strategies. And the, um, in turn, there's an implication which doesn't, which, uh, and this, the same framework will work for almost any regulatory system, I hope. The, the other point that's worth mentioning, and this goes to in, sort of improving the application of the concept as, uh, and in, as in particular, as the completeness of the capital markets have grown over the last 35 years. When we talk about tax arbitrage from the perspective of a regulator, where perhaps if we're, uh, uh, if we're writing tax treaties, we want to avoid uh, tax competition, we want to avoid uh, moving income around uh, in, ways that, uh, in ways that policymakers won't like. The trick that comes out of that analysis is that you've got to tie the cost of, ta of arbitrage to real non-tax costs. It's got to basically be tethered to something that is, that is very ex expensive in non-tax costs in order to change. And that pushes you back to the same set of inquiries that I was trying to do with respect to business lawyers uh, in the original, to business lawyers in the original, uh, in the original article. And it also, and I suppose the second point, uh, which is uh, for tax lawyers are, uh, uh, will come as uh, no surprise, there's been an enormous amount of growth in the kind in both the in both the nature of the applicable finance theory, 
uh, and a substantial growth in the range of economic and non-economic theory that, that needs to play the same role. Um, and just to, to flag those as an, as an example, uh, there's, a there's a significant chunk in the deals course now uh, on option pricing. And the point of the option, the point of the in, of the uh, reason for the inquiry is one: there are embedded, or what the financial financial economists will call real options, in most transactions. Why is that important? The the finance people will uh, will tr will try and tell you that they can value real options. Um, I my experience is I don't believe it, uh, but but that doesn't make it less important. What what the option pricing theory that that uh, got the nobel prize in economics tells you is what factors identify what factors drive the value of an option if i can identify if i can teach students to identify embedded options in a transaction and then i just simply apply the five elements of option pricing uh, without the without the math into the analysis. It provides a really powerful heuristic to identify what it is the writer of the option or the holder of the option is likely to do in order to invent in, in order to increase the value of the what they hold. They're going to try to extend the term. They're going to try and ex post increase the risk associated uh, with the uh, with the underlying cash flows. And it becomes a really nice way of getting across a bunch of concepts that otherwise people, good lawyers pick this up over time and they end up to be very sophisticated even if they can't particularly, they don't have a language to articulate it. The, um, the other element of theory that has grown substantially since the original article um, is negotiation theory. Um, I have uh, people who come and they do a mock, the ABA uh, negotiated transactions group come and they do a mock truck, they do a mock negotiation in the class. And they typically start out by laughing at me, I, I don't mind the role, in saying that, you know, Ivory Tower academic thinks everybody's cooperative. That's not the way acquisitions work. It's all tooth and claw and it's a zero sum game. And I kind of respond by saying, look at the six people on the panel. You're all really good lawyers. In the city of New York or in every other major financial center, there are a bunch of really, really good transaction lawyers. You can't anticipate that you're going to be better than all of them in a predictable way. So treating it this way is just killing time and blowing money. What the what the one of the uh, the really nice things that's happened in uh, uh, in negotiation theory is the recognition that creating value in the course of a negotiation, creating value and dividing value takes place simultaneously. And the strategies to get the most in the division get in the way of sharing of sharing information that help you create it in the first place. So one of the things that 
still needs more work is how to create acoustic separation between the simultaneous process of creating value on the one hand and dividing it on the other. Um, behavioral finance is adding others. Uh, Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman's work uh, enlightens things. So there's a great deal more theory that can be applied than uh, either existed in 84 or which I uh, or which I recognized in 84, but the framework still ends up being the same. The theory illuminates what it is the lawyer or the transaction specialist or the tax lawyer needs to do or the tax regulator uh, uh, in order to affect the value of the transaction. And, and I suppose the, uh, the closing point is, uh, is really that at the center of the transactional galaxy, the black hole is value. In the end, you need to be, we need to be able to tie what we're doing to the value of the transaction to the client. If we're the regulator, we have to be able to tie the same theories into our, regulation, our regulatory strategy to avoid uh, to avoid uh, efforts to arbitrage out of it or undercut it. And that in turn implies what, the, what Michael kindly referred to as we got to do a better job of teaching of what's important to what they're going to do. And I'll close with the sense that legal practice has changed since I was, uh, since I spent time uh, in practice. It's faster. And my my sense, and people in the room will have a, will have a better view of it than I do, that young associates don't get as many chances to figure things out as they did when I started practice. That the ability to be useful, to be given a document and have a framework for going through it and understanding what they should look for, makes them useful. And being useful is a really, really powerful way to identify what's necessary to be successful in very competitive law firms uh, in the world that we all live in. And I do think we have to do a better job at causing our students to be useful when they start. And it can't be in the, the, the twist, which uh, Michael did a better job of describing it than I did, that's not that's not practitioner work in the negative way it tends to get talked about in the academy. It's deeply theoretical work because the theory is a way of transmitting information efficiently and quickly. So uh, I don't want uh, I don't want accounting for lawyers. I don't want finance for lawyers. I want them to I want straight I want them to know accounting. I want to teach them that. And for those of us who are worried about sustainability, about green finance, about equality, we damn well better be as sophisticated in finance theory and economics as the people on the other side of the table. Because otherwise, we will uh, the people we the issues we care about, uh, we will systematically lose them. Okay, I'm done. Thank you so much. This is a really, um, the, we're getting deeply into these issues. It's already a, a really great discussion. Before we get to the queue, I just wanted to, Michael, give you a chance to respond if you wanted to respond to any of that. 
Um, I'll very quickly. Um, thank you, Ron. I just want to pick up on a, on a couple of points. There are a lot of great points there. Um, I often will use uh, negotiations in, in class. And what, what I think might be the most useful in the context of Ron's article and that way of thinking is it shows in some sense the conflict between cooperative and competitive aspects of negotiation. Right. And in addition, I believe because the competitive can take so much time and can take so much energy, it tends to overshadow the cooperative, both for the young lawyer who's learning that both are getting are happening, and it tends to cause people not to recognize and overlook what, in fact, Ron, you've exposed, which is the important cooperative side of it. The other point I just want to briefly mention is that I think in many ways, Ron foreshadowed the uh, Carnegie report of 2007 on legal education about the role of, of theory and how we should be teaching lawyers, law students, sort of the real theory behind so much of what they are, are doing um, I don't know that they gave much in the way of examples, but I think Ron really gave a great example in the article. And our next session is on June 11th, uh, where the featured work will be building a law and political economy framework beyond the 20, 20th century synthesis. This work was chosen by Ann Alsot and one of the co-authors, Amy Kapsinski, both of Yale, will join us. You can register for that on the web.